all good. It's good to be back. As I was saying, it's feeling more and more like home every week, every day. And uh, this city has felt like home for a long time for us now. And we're just grateful to be here. Amen. We had a couple of weeks off. We didn't do a whole lot. We did a little bit of sojourning around, went across to the United States of America and did some school shopping and realized that our prices here are just as good. So just a, just a, just a, just a heads up. <laughs> but we had, it's so funny we ended up doing all our shopping at Walmart almost it was so funny I'm like we have Walmarts in Canada what am I doing here anyway it was a great though it was a great little uh little trip for us and we got to spend some time as a family just uh relaxing spending time with other family who we invited to the city and took them around did some sightseeing and uh did typical things that you do when you come visit Toronto to Zoo and Canada's Wonderland and 45,000 steps later after two days, you know, you're lying in your house and you're wondering, why did I do that? But it's all good. We're glad to be here. We're glad to be back. And it's, uh, it's good to be home. Amen? Amen. I want to look in the Word of God this morning in the Hebrews. I've been kind of working my way through Hebrews in my own devotional life. And uh, as a result, a lot of times, you know, you end up... People say, oh, pastors shouldn't be preaching out of their devotional life. I'm like, I don't really know how to do it any other way, you know. I, I get up every morning and I say, Jesus, speak to me. And uh, and I read his word and, I, and I, I want it to get invested in my life. And so many of my sermons come from my personal relationship with God, my personal devotional life. And so right now I'm reading through a commentary and reading... Um, through Hebrews and just trying to take it in and, and, and invest in it. And as I was reading through chapter 2 of Hebrews, which is where we're going to find ourselves today, I came across this word, pioneer. And it just so stuck to me, stuck with me. And uh, I, I decided to start studying and looking into this word, and uh, here we are today. Amen? So pioneer in a traditional sense of the word is not really commonly used today. You don't, you don't often even talk about an entrepreneur saying, oh, they're pioneering a business. You know, it's just not a common word today. Uh, back when I was growing up, my parents were pastors of what Newfoundland, uh, the Pentecost Assemblies in Newfoundland turned pioneer assemblies. And I think maybe they, they I believe they call them um, developing assemblies here for a while. And now uh, I think they may have changed the name again. But we call them pioneer assemblies. And the, the idea behind that word pioneer is a person who is among those who first enter or settle a region, uh, thus opening it for occupation and development for others. And so you can see how that word would, would uh, lend itself to advancing the gospel, coming in and, and opening up people's hearts and pioneering the word of God in people's hearts. Um, but today we are more likely to use words like author or originator uh, or even a founder uh, in current society to be a proprietor of something unique, whether it is a thought, an idea, a product, or even a dance move, is oftentimes something worth defending or fighting for. Now, if you just got your phone out because you think I'm going to dance, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> so I'm not going to be dancing anytime in your future or in anybody else's future. And I can't control what happens in heaven, but I think we may all be dancing at that point. Amen? 
Uh, and let's be straight, it is important to respect people's creativity and originality. We should honor people's originality, uh, the work that they put into thinking up and coming up with original ideas. And I do my best personally to give credit, even when I'm preaching here, if I have a quote or whatnot, I like to give the author or the book or, or give credit to the original thinker of those thoughts, um, as far as I know where the original thinker comes from. But uh, There are social media personalities that become famous because of their originality, whether it be personality, a dance move, a persona, any kind of gimmick, really. It's, it's miraculous what people can do to use, uh, use to make money nowadays, to the point where people license and patent these ideas and even merchandise them. They get a catchphrase that people gravitate to on TikTok or Instagram, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you see it on a T-shirt or a hat, and they're merchandising it, and they got a QR code to go to my own shop and find... My merchandise, everybody has a merch point on their page now. The courts are full of people who are fighting for their intellectual property and sometimes even a common phrase that they co-opt as their own. It's, it's kind of crazy. Even in Christian circles, sometimes we see people fighting over ideas and thoughts. Even when it comes to end zone celebrations. Any NFL fans in the room? Next Sunday? You know, kickoff Sunday, my wife well knows I gave her the four-week notice that that's, that kickoff Sunday is a coming. And so she knows that when I get home after church, you know, I, I, I record the games and stuff, and I'll go home, and I'm just like, not now, leave me alone. And if the, I'm a Tennessee Titans fan, and if the Titans don't win, she might need to give me a bit of time after to recover. No, it's not that bad. It may be that bad. I'm not sure. But in the NFL, you know, they brought back the, the ability now to celebrate in the end zone. They took it away for a while, and they ended up calling it the No Fun League for a while instead of the National Football League because they took the, the end zone uh, celebrations away. But they brought them back, and, and since they brought them back, you know, there is one very popular dance that happens in the end zone called the Gritty. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Gritty. Put your hand up if you've heard of the Gritty. Wow, all three of you. You know that millions and millions and millions of people watch the NFL every week, right? <laughs> so anyway, the, the Gritty is a, a, is a dance celebration that was created. And it was made popular by uh, two football players, really. Jamar Chase, who's a wide receiver of the Cincinnati Bengals, and Justin Jefferson, who's a wide receiver of the Minnesota Vikings. And consequently, they're probably two of the best receivers in the entire league. So I don't know if the dance gives them powers or whatever. No, I don't think so, but... Um, and everybody think, a lot of people think that they originated the dance, but they didn't originally originate the dance. A guy named Alan Davis, who was nicknamed Alan Gritty Davis, created the dance. And Jamar Chase, he's Jamar Chase's friends from his time when he was in university at uh, Louisiana State University, LSU. And um, one time, Alan Gritty Davis shared his dance on Snapchat and Chase caught up with it and, and caught on to it. And the next thing you know, he was using it as a celebration dance in the end zone when he was in college. Alan Gritty Davis pioneered the Gritty, and now he gets paid for it. I mean, he gets paid for it. I mean, he gets paid for it to be on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and even Fortnite. You'll find the Gritty Dance on a video game called Fortnite. And Madden is probably one of the most, is the most popular football video game known and uh, they pay him a significant sum to feature him in their promos 
Now, Justin Jefferson, and get this now, Justin Jefferson, one of the wide receivers of good friends of Alan Grady Davis, um, he even gets endorsed by a cereal brand. Everybody know about Cinnamon Toast Crunch? You ever had Cinnamon Toast Crunch? It's not good for you. They put on the box that there's this many nutrients and it's multigrain. It don't matter. It's not good for you. Something that tastes that good can't be that good for you. But anyway, they, they pioneered. He came up with his own cereal called the Gritty Toast Crunch. Now, I don't know if there's still cinnamon in it, but if you're interested, you can go online and find a box of these Gritty Toast Crunch for the low, low price of $49.95 a box. Crazy, right? All because of a guy that, you know, saw somebody doing a dance they called a nay nay and said, oh, I'd like to create my own dance, and he did. And now it's worldwide phenomenon. Not that worldwide, because only three of you all know it, but. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, many originate or pioneer products or ideas, and they hope to monetize it. They want to make money out of it. They want an original idea. After all, there is not much left to be trailblazed geographically on the planet. At least unless you're underwater, because we've only apparently explored 5% of the oceans, which for some reason terrifies me <laughs> of thinking about what's down there. I'm just kidding. The problem with many of these pioneer ideas is that they can on times become people's identities. They become known for what they do what they have created instead of who God created them to be. And we hear cautionary tales of people who put their stock in these ideas and stuff and, and they gain fame from it. But when the world loses attention and loses their attraction to it, they lose their identity and they don't know what to do with themselves. Jesus is described in Hebrews as the pioneer of our salvation. But he did not pioneer our salvation because he needed credit or fame. And our redemption was certainly not owed to us. In fact, one of the biggest fallacies about God as creator is that he created us for community. That he created us because he needed community. The thought that he needed us, a people to rule uh, that would worship him. An accurate theology of the Trinity where Jesus has perfect communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together corrects that ideology. And it brings value to our faith to understand that God did not need us. And you're thinking here, boy, you're not making me feel very good today, Pastor. No, the thought that he didn't need us brings us back to the idea that why did he create, create us? <laughs> it was because of love. The thought that he needed us, he needed someone to rule, sounds very dominating to me. It doesn't sound like a fun thing to do, to create pawns that would rule and, and follow after him. No, he created us to love. He created us and invited us into the unity that is represented in the Trinity. This is the idea of unity when he talks in John 17 that he's talking about. He came, died, he rose again, and has gone to prepare a place for us. Hallelujah. He did none of that because he had to. So why would he? Pioneering in this day and age uh, may be a way 
to carve out our niche and make a name for ourselves, make our future and invest in our future. But Jesus as pioneer was perfect, selfless, and did not need our acknowledgement and he did not need our worship. The very essence of who he is demands our worship, calls us to it, but the thought that he needs it misunderstands the Trinity, misunderstands the community that, that Jesus was already a part of. He certainly did not have financial motivation, so why would he appear, why would he pioneer this re redemptive path for us? He created us out of love, and then we messed up. I, I, I think to myself, why didn't he just wipe the slate, start again? Why? Hebrews 2.10 says this, he says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Amen, that's a powerful statement in and of itself. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Father, I pray that you would just open this passage to us today, O oh God. Uh, I have it brought down to a very narrow focus because this whole chapter just has so much in it. But Father, I pray that you would open your word to us today, that in the context of this word, O oh God, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, and that your Holy Spirit would take precedence in place and be the primary communicator here, Lord. I only hope to be a vessel. Lord, use me for your kingdom today, Lord Jesus. Give me clarity of thought and speech as I present your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, some translations refer to him in this passage as the author. Uh, the NIV translates it that way. The Greek word archegos, or archegos, I'm not sure exactly the appropriate, I think it's archegos, can be translated primarily as pioneer or author. The King James translates it captain, and I kind of like that. He's a captain of this salvation. Other translations, other alternatives include trailblazer, guide, originator, founder. In the secular Greek literature, Archegos has been used to describe the head of a clan or even a hero. And in secular Greek, uh, you'll find this word with reference to uh, some of their mythological characters like Hercules. And in those uh, myths, they refer to him as a champion. And I love to think of Jesus as our champion. It is amazing how much can be conveyed through one word in scripture, Artegos, pioneer, author, founder, champion. Isn't that cool? Jesus is our pioneer. He's our leader. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what that means for you today is that you have chosen the path of faith. In describing the significance of Christ as pioneer, Archegos, one commentator says, Christ in the days of his flesh trod undeviatingly the path of faith. And as the perfecter has brought it to a perfect end in his own person, thus he is the leader of all others who tread that path. The image of a path of running a race is found throughout Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 1, again, we see the word pioneer again here. It says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, and he had a word here now, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, 
scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Paul talks about the training involved and the eagerness with which we should run the path of faith. He says in verse 24 in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. It doesn't mean that just one of us is going to win the race. The point in this passage is to win the race as if you're going to win it because he has already won it. He has already pioneered the path of faith. He has already authored the direction that you need to go. He is already championing you to victory. It should bring great peace to know that when God calls us, it is from the front. A lot of times I think we get the idea that when God calls us, that he's standing next to us. He says, right there, there, that's where you got to go. So go that way. I'll catch up with you. And I get this picture of a little boy and he pat him on the bum and say, okay, go on. And it's not like that. When God calls, he has already pioneered the path for you. He has already authored the destiny for you. He has already mapped out the path of faith for you. He has already perfected it for you. He has now completed the path of faith, and the Word of God tells us that He's preparing a place for you. And He's from the front calling you and saying, Come, follow the path I put before you, run the race. Do it as if you're going to win, because I've already promised you the victory. If we go back to Hebrews 2 and down to verse 14 and 18, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Amen. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. The path of faith we choose as believers has been trailblazed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He understands the struggle. He understands the difficulty of the path. He's been through everything that you can imagine. And he is the one, not only does he understand the path, he broke the trail. Have you ever been in the woods and tried to walk in, in, in waist-deep snow without snowshoes? Even with snowshoes, it's hard. You're like lifting one leg and you're trying to go. It's crazy. But when somebody goes in and breaks a trail before you, in Newfoundland, we, we, we understood this a lot. You know, people would go in and break the trail. Someone who had a nice skidoo that could go good in deep snow, they'd go break the trail. And then us who had the heavier machines that came in were thankful that they broke the trail so that we could go and not get our, our snow machines stuck. And in Newfoundland, it's pretty cool, actually. 
Because in a little place where I lived in Pointe Bay and, and all across Newfoundland, they would do this. They would cut trails. They would break trails into the woods. And they would name the trails after their family. And I remember behind our house, there was Cole's Trail. There was, I think, a Peckford's Trail. There was King's Trail. And there was all the trails that they would take their snow machines in to go cut wood and bring back to be able to heat their house in the winter. And I remember thinking about that, how cool that was. And, and, and we used to even use them to navigate our way through the woods. Oh, we're on King's Trail now, or Cole's Trail, or whatnot. You ever think about why we're called Christians? It's funny, because it was actually used in Antioch when the church first began as, as <laughs> they were trying to mock, a, mock the believers. You know, those are, there goes those Christ followers, those Christians. And that's how the word breaks down, is Christ... And the I-A-N at the end is a Greek suffix, which means follower of. We are followers of Christ. His name is on the path. His name is on the path of faith that we are called to follow. We are followers of Christ. Every time you hear the word Christian, take it personally, because it's overused in society today. When I say that I'm a Christian, a lot of times I'll explain it to people. That means, and sometimes I'll even jump over the name and say, I'm a follower of Christ. Because I want them to understand that I understand whose name is on the path that I'm following. The need for this path is highlighted by the fact that we are not as we should be. The world is not as it should be. It was, cre it was created that way. But it's not as we should be. Hebrews chapter 2, if you look back now, go back to verses 6 and 7. He quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, when it says, But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything on subjugation that the world is here for our benefit. And I don't know that God meant it that way. I, meant it, I think he meant it for us to care for it. To love the creation that he has given us. To bless it, to care for it, to manage it. But we, we, we think of it as in ruling and subjugation, but it's not necessarily that way. But he crowned us with glory and honor a little lower than the angels and put everything under our feet. Boy, that passage is misquoted. And if I could say missung in songs over the years. John Stott says, Christ knew that it was a humanity marked by frustration. Ever feel frustrated with the sin of the world? He said, Christ knew there was humanity marked by frustration. Man is not what he intended him to be. This is why the creation account in Scripture is really eschatological. And when I talk about, it's really talking about end times, because our end times, you know, you think about it, he created us in perfect fellowship with him. He created us to have fellowship, to live in a perfect place with him. And the creation account in Scripture is eschatological in that ever since then, we're, he's been trying to restore us to that relationship. He's, he's had his plan to restore us to that relationship, to redeem our sins and to bring us into his holy presence for eternity. And then we have this word 
you know, when we talk about salvation, he's going to glorify us. Glorify, there's, salvation is breaking down, and I think I mentioned this before, into justification. It's just as if you'd never sinned. When you accept Christ, traps of the enemy in the world. And people like to think, well, Jesus still wasn't tempted by lust. He wasn't tempted by everything. Yeah, he was. The only record we have of his life is three years. Anyone who's ever been an adolescent male knows that he was tempted by lust. I mean, he grew up, he was a teenager, he still had the hormones you and I had. I mean, he was tempted by these things, but he, did, he walked the path perfectly. Which is called glorification, then we will be able to walk it perfectly. But the fact that he has walked it perfectly for us already tells us that that day is coming. You're probably going to fail by the end of the day. You might yell at your kids. You might yell at somebody who cut you off on the road. That's a Toronto given, isn't it? You might get frustrated by any number of things. You could be waiting in line and somebody might butt in front of you. And you're like, oh, I'm going to act like Jesus. You know, I better not cause a fuss here. You ever fight you ever fight that thing? You know, you want to step up and say something to somebody, you're like, well, where am I gonna get myself? You know, I don't wanna, you know, and we and we excuse things away because of our witness. You're gonna have so many opportunities today to sin, and you're probably gonna give in once or twice. Don't kill yourself. That's what grace is about. But wake up the moral determined to be set apart, sanctified. Determined to say, God, today I'm going to try again. I want to be holy today. Help me. And I believe that God will help you see growth in this path of faith. Amen? But this is why the creation account, like I said, I believe is eschatological. It's bringing us back. It's restoring what was once created. It displays in the beginning at creation the path of faith destination as well. It is the path of redemption. The destiny and the dignity with which we are created has been and is being restored through the cross because Jesus became flesh and provided a way, a path back home. I was glad to come back from our vacation because like I said, this is home now. But I feel in my heart, I'm not all the way home yet. My home is with him for eternity. Christ also reveals who we can be. He also reveals who we can be. Yes, humanity has been frustrated by sin. We must acknowledge the path of faith provided for us by our pioneer, our author, our hero, our savior, our captain. We need to acknowledge the path made clear by our great champion. He reminds us of the destiny and the dignity with which we were created and charts a course for us back home. Who we are or can be is sons and daughters of glory. Oh, can't even take that thought in. Sons and daughters of glory. Let's go back to Hebrews 2 verse 10 again. For a minute it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting... In the Greek, it's, it's translated all perfect. When this passage talks about him being made perfect through what he suffered, it is, refer, is, is referring 
to the Jewish idea that perfection is applied at death as the completion or the seal of life. It is a reference to Jesus completing the course. When it says Jesus is made perfect, it's referencing the fact that he has already completed the course, the path of faith has to weigh as the first fruits. Our origins are as sons and daughters of glory, and he has made a path by his death and resurrection to return to him. Hallelujah! He reveals who we can be. He lived this life perfectly to give us a glimpse of who we can be. He was tempted. He went through things. For crying out loud, he was called into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights for the sole purpose of taking direct temptation from the enemy of our souls. He understands what it means to go up against the temptations of the world and to overcome them by the word of God and his testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Our origins are as sons and daughters of glory. And so through Christ's work, we see who we will be. We see who we will be. I'm not saying the path of faith is easy. I think sometimes we get it twisted and we try to make people believe that, you know, come to be a Christian and, and he'll take care of all your needs. Oh, he'll care for you all right. But he's not going to make your path perfect. He's not going to take your idea and make you a millionaire. Our path of faith through this life is frustrated by sin still, but so was Christ's path. He endured temptation, anxiety, and yes, he even endured stupid people. Whoop, did I say that out loud? <laughs> yeah. But he never saw us that way. He never saw us that way. When we keep making the same mistakes, we keep going back. I don't know if you ever seen a video on, on, online where, where the farmer pulls the poor sheep out of the ditch and he puts the sheep over on the side and all of a sudden the sheep's like boom, 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 back in the ditch again. You ever feel like that? It's a funny video, but it's so, it hits a little too close to home. But God never saw us as, as making these mistakes over and over. He never saw us as stupid people. He saw us as sons and daughters of glory. He saw us as children, sons and daughters of the living God. And it was his joy to pick us out of the ditch one more time. It was his joy and when he puts us back on the firm ground and we jump back, it's his joy to pick us out of the ditch and put us on the path again. And I can go back to Revelations, I believe, or Romans 6, I believe, where it talks about not taking advantage of the grace of God, and we can get into that. There's a whole other sermon, I understand that, but still his joy to put us back on the right path again. He saw us as needing a pioneer and love he loved that which his hands had created he loved us 
He loves us still. Why would he endure the path of faith and lead, that led him to the brutal cross if he didn't love us? Because he has never stopped loving us. I was stuck this week by something Tim Keller said in, in, in a talk presented at Biola University. And maybe some of you read this article that was put out by ChristianityToday.com. It was written by Mike Cosper. In this article, he quotes Keller, and Keller said this, he says, when you try to reach a city, you'll encounter four kinds of people. Stupid people's not in the list, by the way. One is commuters. Just in this, <laughs> and they find a way to survive in an environment that they're not really comfortable in. And then we got tourists. Tourists love the energy. They come into the city for the event they can. There's no investment. And then there's natives. People say, oh, well, that's good. We're, we're natives. This is what we are. This is who we should be. But natives, they have a deeper investment. They're also survivors who likely take it a bit for granted because they've been here. They know the ebbs and flows of the life. And you all get annoyed with tourists. You all get annoyed with survivors and commuters, don't we, sometimes? We can admit this. I've only lived in the city now six or seven years, but I, I kind of feel a bit like, like a native now. I'm starting to fit in. The author Mike Cosper of the article at ChristianityToday.com added a fifth type of person which he considered Keller, and he considered Keller one of these things, and this is where I think we should fit. The fifth type of person is a lover. A leader who wants to reach the city and make lovers of the other four types. Lovers care about the people they meet and do life with. They don't see the city as a means to an end, but a place to dig roots and devote their lives. They, in essence, become like Christ, pioneering paths for people to pioneer himself by loving others how he did as he pioneered the path of faith. Now we're getting into my own thoughts. We can be pioneers for others, inspired by the love of Christ, leading people to embark on the path of faith that Christ has trails blazed for us all. So why would he pioneer this redemptive path for us? Because he loved us. And you might say, you said all that just to say that I knew Jesus loved me. Well, hear it again this morning. People say, well, every sermon seems to be about how Jesus loved me. Well, is it part of who you are yet? Have you become a lover? Are you pioneering a way for other people to find their way to Jesus? Have you got to the point where the person that ticks you off is someone you pray for? Have you got to the point where you're not a survivor anymore? You're not a tourist anymore. You're not even a native anymore. You're not, you know, someone, a commuter who comes in and pops in to this faith once in a while. And then when you get what's convenient for you, you get back out again. That's not the way this path of faith was meant to be. We are not meant to commute here. We're not meant to survive here. We're not even meant to be natives here. We're meant to be lovers here. To be people who love those in the city, in our neighborhoods. You want to know what communicated Jesus Christ to people when he walked this earth? It's because he looked at them and he saw them with compassionate eyes. He saw their needs. And he healed people because he had compassion on them. Because he loved them. 
I get frustrated with myself sometimes because I find it's easy to lose these compassionate eyes, isn't it? That little sheep jumped back in the ditch again, right? But I look up to the heavens, I say, Father, I'm in the ditch again. Can you pull me back out? Don't live in the ditch. It's not a good life. It's not a good life. That rut is not the path that God has planned for you. Let him pull you out and walk farther on the path the next day, amen? Don't live in the ditch. That's not his plan. He has pioneered the path of faith for you to walk. And he is calling you home. And maybe you're here today and you've never heard this message before and you say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never felt God calling me home. Well, you may be feeling something in your, in your heart, in your spirit today, and I'm going to tell you that that's the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking to you. And he speaks most time in a still small voice. We want him to come with, thou, with clouds and thunderclaps and lightning. We want him to come like the world thinks he's, he's like Zeus or something with lightning bolts. Boom! That would get everybody's attention, right? No, he comes. He comes and he speaks to your stillness. When you're in the rut and you're mad at yourself again for being there again, he comes and says, Hey, <laughs> I got you. I remember when I was a little boy in Labrador, we got a lot of snow, <laughs> a lot of snow. I can remember my dad riding the skidoo over our house kind of snow, straight up. And I remember in the spring one year, the snow started to pull away from the house and we would be out playing on these big banks of snow. And I was around three or four years old and I slipped and I went down in the rut between the house and the snow. And I was looking up and all I could see was blue sky, snow and wall. And I'm like, how am I gonna get out of here? So I started banging my brother, I believe, went and got my mom. The next thing you know, I felt my mom's strong arm pull me out. The rut. Your father is not gonna leave you there. Your father is not gonna leave you there. 